Hello all, and welcome to this episode, this very special episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is part two of a two-part series known as The Last Flight of the Silver Dollar, and I'm your host, Rick Stone. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the foundation, please visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. If you're hearing this preview of No Home for Heroes on YouTube or Audio Burst or even Instagram, we invite you to listen to the complete podcast on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast or streaming platform you prefer. Today's story on No Home for Heroes is the second of two episodes about a World War II bomber given the name The Silver Dollar, its fateful end, and finding all of the missing crew members who rode it into battle over the skies of Germany in 1944. Stay tuned while we tell you how we learned an incredible tale of heroism that had never been told before and how we interviewed a witness to the crash of the Silver Dollar after over 67 years, and why no one had ever heard his story. And in the end, even one mystery will still remain. In our last episode, I'm afraid my Texas accent severely mangled the pronunciation of the German towns Arweiler and Kirschweiler and Menderscheid. In appreciation to my German associate Bernard, I promise to do better today. All of us here at the Foundation want to dedicate this episode to our loyal listeners at the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum, whose staff greatly assisted me in the original investigation of today's case in 2011. Without their help and referral, the world would likely never know the true story of the heroic crew of the Silver Dollar. And now, on with our show. Today's episode is the conclusion of case number 0151 from the investigative files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation. In July 2011, I was tasked with a simple job, a simple job of tying up some loose historical ends to support a recovery mission by the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command in Germany. My investigation answered long elusive questions, but, and there's always a but in history's military mysteries, The facts I found stirred up another mystery that remains to this day. Stay tuned while we bring you the exciting conclusion to the Silver Dollar's last flight, shot down over Germany with five of its six-man crew missing, and for the first time, learn of the unbelievable heroism of the pilot and the co-pilot in the last moments of their lives. As we learned in our last episode, the Silver Dollar was a Martin B-26C model known as the Marauder, was built in Omaha, Nebraska in 1942. The B-26C had a 71-foot wingspan, which comprised about 713 square feet. It had two engines, one mounted on each side of the wing. When we last described our specific B-26C Marauder, nicknamed the Silver Dollar, she was gliding down toward enemy territory with one engine on fire, and the other engine stopped. The huge scripted name Silver Dollar and the logo of a large U.S. Morgan dollar coin was clearly visible to the many witnesses in the other aircraft who saw her fall. 
Two days before Christmas on 23 December 1944, the silver dollar was on a bombing mission to attack a railroad bridge in Arweiler, Germany, when she was attacked by many enemy fighter aircraft. First Lieutenant John J. Adair was the navigator and bombardier on board the Silver Dollar. He was the only survivor from the bomber's six-man crew. When First Lieutenant James F. Gatlin, the pilot, rang the bell on the Silver Dollar, signaling the crew to bail out, Second Lieutenant Stephen V. Beeses, the co-pilot, lowered the landing gear to allow for a bailout from the nose area of the airplane. Lieutenant Adair climbed down to the open nose wheel doors and bailed out, leaving First Lieutenant Gatlin seated in the pilot seat and Second Lieutenant Beeses standing between the pilot and the co-pilot seat. Lieutenant Adair expected Second Lieutenant Beeses to follow him through the hatch, down into the nose area, and exit the airplane out the open nose wheel doors. Well, it just didn't happen. In addition to Lieutenant Gatlin and Lieutenant Beeses, Lieutenant Adair left behind the tail gunner, Staff Sergeant Milton Cowart, the engineer, Staff Sergeant William Weisker, and the radio operator, Staff Sergeant Joe Sanchez, when he bailed out over Arviler. First Lieutenant Adair's parachute caught in a tree six feet above the ground. While hanging in his harness, he heard small arms fire. After hanging there for about half an hour, the German civilian and a member of the German army helped him down and took him prisoner, where he stayed in a POW camp until the end of the war. He never saw or heard from the remainder crew of the Silver Dollar again. During questioning about the whereabouts of his five missing crewmates, First Lieutenant Adair was consistent, and he was adamant that each one of his crewmates was, quote, disposed of by SS troops, the Hitler Youth, or German civilians, end quote although he could provide no really specific information or direct knowledge of fact to support his conclusions. So, our exciting episode today begins here. A burning airplane with five crewmen last seen gliding down toward enemy territory. Only one crewman recovered after the war, with an incredible tale of his own survival and his unshakable belief about what happened to the other five missing crew members of the Silver Dollar. But what actually happened to the missing five, Lieutenants Gatlin and Beeses, and Staff Sergeants Weisker, Sanchez, and Cowart? When I first received this case investigation while a member of the Department of Defense, I really had some serious doubts about Lieutenant Adair's story. First on my list was just how could he have escaped through the nose wheel area when all the training manuals on the B-26 did not indicate that this emergency exit was even possible. A quick inspection of a B-26 variant, an A-26 invader, that was mounted on a pedestal near my office in Honolulu, didn't seem to show a space large enough in the nose wheel cavity to get out, much less while wearing a bulky parachute. Of course, much of the case investigation depended upon Lieutenant Adair's testimony after the war, so his veracity was of paramount importance to my case investigation. I towed another investigator along with me and ventured over to Ford Island in Pearl Harbor to speak to the mechanics who specialized in rebuilding World War II aircraft for the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum. <laughs> Little did I know that short drive would answer most of my questions 
but take me on a detour to the twilight zone of another mystery. The mechanics at the Pearl Harbor Museum had a phone number of a former World War II B-26 crew member who had helped them in the past. And soon I was talking with former First Lieutenant Frank Bergmeier in upstate New York. Incredibly, Lieutenant Bergmeier, then in his 80s, told me that he was the lead bombardier navigator of the group that flew on the same mission that very same day with the Silver Dollar. He vividly remembered the mission like it was yesterday. Lieutenant Bergmeier verified that lowering the landing gear was a tactic utilized by the pilot or the co-pilot only in cases where a bailout from the Bombay area was impossible. According to First Lieutenant Bergmeier, there were no other escape avenues for the pilot or the co-pilot or the navigator bombardier in the B-26. In addition, First Lieutenant Bergmeier noted that the B-26 was very unstable to fly. He certainly did not feel that the aircraft would have remained in a straight and level glide attitude if there was no pilot or no co-pilot at the controls. He gave me some other great information about the Silver Dollar case. Well, we'll have to describe that later. I don't want to get too far ahead in our story. Lieutenant Bergmeier was detailed and concise and elaborate in his description of the mission where the silver dollar was lost. Well, being that detailed always rings caution bells in an investigator. But when I asked him how it was that he remembered that particular mission so completely from over 65 years ago, he replied, hey, simple, it was my last mission of the war. When we landed, they asked me to go back up for another mission later in the day, and I said, hell no. I've done my 65 missions, and I'm going home. And he did. Hitchhiking to Paris to catch a flight to England, and later home via a ship to his wife, Teddy, in New York. Like the old TV detective Columbo, I just had to ask one more question. Lieutenant, why didn't you ever tell anyone this story? Well, he chuckled and said, well, you know, no one until you ever ask. Unbelievable. Now all I had to do was find the crew members of the Silver Dollar, and here's what I discovered. I learned that Staff Sergeant Coward jumped from the burning plane. His parachute failed to open, and he died on impact with the ground. After the war, personnel from the American Graves Registration Service recovered his remains from an isolated grave in the Manderscheid Church Cemetery in Manderscheid, Germany. He was carried to the burial place, allegedly, by German soldiers and buried by three Polish workers. Staff Sergeant Cowart's cause of death is listed by the American Graves Registration Service personnel as, quote, bullet wound left chest, end quote. Two identification tags, a fractured right femur and fractured left radius and fractured maxim, which is your jaw, are noted in the disinterment report. Staff Sergeant Weisker also jumped from the burning plane, either with or without a parachute, and if he had the parachute, it may have been on fire. When the body was found by two German civilians, the clothing of Sergeant Weisker was burned off. Those same civilians reported that two other flyers parachuted to safety and were taken away by German soldiers to an unknown location. Personnel from the American Graves Registration Service recovered the remains of Staff Sergeant Weisker from an isolated grave in Bettenfeld, Germany. 
During this disinterment, Staff Sergeant Weisker's partially disarticulated body was found with one identification tag, or dog tag, and a hole of an unknown type in his cranium. The body also showed that the right radius, one-third of the left ulna, and a few bones of the hands and feet were missing. The right humerus and the right and left fibula were fractured. In 1996, members of the Central Identification Laboratory Hawaii, sometimes known as Hive, investigated a crash site located close to Mandershide, Germany. A German civilian stated he searched the crash site area with a metal detector and discovered artifacts, including a 45 caliber pistol and several pieces of bone. The civilian also found a bracelet engraved with, quote, Stephen V. Thesis, number 0824081, end quote. He stated he found it in the stream bed at the crash site. Cell High investigators visited the site again in May 1999 and interviewed several witnesses to the crash in 1944. The witnesses indicated that the aircraft skipped along the ground before skidding down a slope and slamming into a creek bank. After the war, an unknown Swiss company recovered the aircraft wreckage sometime around the summer of 1948. The Sill High investigators surveyed the crash site, and they also accepted possible human remains from the civilian witness. On 21 July 1999, the laboratory personnel identified two of the bones as non-human and one bone as a human right distal radial fragment. Well, that bone is near your wrist area. After only 11 years, on 2 September 2010, laboratory personnel from the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command finally identified the human bone received in 1999 as coming from the right wrist of Staff Sergeant Sanchez. No information about the specific fate of First Lieutenant Gatlin was received after he was last seen in the pilot seat of the Silver Dollar with Lieutenant Visa standing next to him. On 23 May 2008, the German civilian sent a packet of information to JPAC with photographs of artifacts that he had recovered from the crash site of the Silver Dollar near Mandershay. The civilian declined to turn over the actual artifacts to investigators, but the photographs wound up in the file, and I was able to look them over very carefully. They depicted Lieutenant Beast's ID bracelet and some other things that really caught my attention. One was a packet of multiple photographs of a Colt Model 1911A. 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol. This pistol was the standard issue to aircrew members in World War II. The pistol contained an ammunition clip with seven live rounds of ammunition. A shoulder holster for this particular weapon was shown in the photographs and the butt fragment of an ammunition clip from this type of weapon. Well, during my 30 years career with, in law enforcement, I occasionally had some familiarity with this type of weapon. Based on my experience, I can certify that the standard method to carry this weapon in a non-active combat role, as was the case with the crew members of the Silver Dollar, would be to carry it with a seven-round clip of ammunition inserted into the butt of the weapon, no round in the chamber, the hammer in the down position, and the slide lock in the up 
or safety on position. You would have to be insane to carry this weapon with a round in the chamber, the safety off, and the hammer cocked back as was shown in the photographs. According to Lieutenant Bergmeier, my informant, if you will, from New York, this same method that I described was used by bomber crews in World War II who carried the weapon in the safe position in a shoulder holster. A close examination of the photographs of the weapon found at the crash site reveals that the ammunition clip is inserted in the weapon, but it is empty, and that seven loose rounds of .45 caliber ammunition are displayed. One round appeared very different. Its condition was almost pristine as if it had been protected by the elements by being inside the firing chamber. The safety of the weapon was off. The hammer was fully cocked back into the firing position. This condition occurs as we talk when the slide is pulled back to feed a live round into the chamber in preparation for combat. The significance of this observation is that if the weapon was found in its photograph condition, then it's possible that either 1st Lieutenant Gatlin, 2nd Lieutenant Besis, or Staff Sergeant Sanchez survived the original crash long enough to activate their sidearm in preparation for engaging in defensive ground combat. Multiple additional recovery missions by the Department of Defense were mounted to the crash site after my report was filed with JPAC in 2011. Additional bone fragments were later recovered from the crash site during the period 2011 through 2014. 1st Lieutenant James F. Gatlin, Jr., the pilot, was officially identified from those remains on 9 January 2015. Second Lieutenant Stephen V. Besis, the last remaining MIA from the Silver Dollar, the co-pilot of the Silver Dollar, was identified on 6 August 19 correction, 6 August 2015. So what can we conclude about the final moments of the Silver Dollar and her gallant crew? Well, in the final analysis, the preponderance of the evidence indicates that the pilot, First Lieutenant James F. Gatlin, Jr., made the decision to stay with his aircraft and attempt to control the Silver Dollar while allowing his crew time and opportunity to bail out. The co-pilot, 2nd Lieutenant Besis, evidently decided not to follow Lieutenant Adair out the escape hatch, down the nose wheel, and he probably sat back down in his co-pilot seat to help Lieutenant Gatlin control the aircraft. They valiantly attempted to land their crippled and burning aircraft without success, and they lost their life in the process. There's no doubt that their heroic actions saved at least one crew member, First Lieutenant Adair, who did successfully bail out, and their actions gave the other crew members at least a final chance for survival. The significance of the condition of the 45 caliber service pistol is intriguing, and I'm still worried by it. It is possible that 1st Lieutenant Gatlin, 2nd Lieutenant Besis, or Staff Sergeant Sanchez survived the original crash long enough to activate their sidearm, as we discussed. To do so, the airman would have needed to remove the pistol from its shoulder holster, depress the safety lever, pull the slide back to force a live round from the clip into the firing chamber. All of these actions seem to be indicated by the conditions of the photographed pistol. Whether this is what occurred, 
supported by witness testimony and forensic evidence that some of the crew were shot, will probably never be known. That question is likely to remain forever as one of history's military mysteries. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. Wow, what an incredible story. It has been an incredible adventure for me just to tell it for you. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes. You can now subscribe to Listen Free on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts. Don't forget to tune in every Saturday when we will post a new episode of History's Military Mysteries Missing in Action. Episodes of No Home for Heroes are produced from the actual investigative case files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation, dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. As always, we greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. You sure don't want to miss our next episode. We have another true story lined up for you about one of our missing American heroes. Tune in to hear it for yourself next week on No Home for Heroes. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas. I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that having heroes forgets them. <laughs>